0: So, we had some friends helping us put on a new roof. And that process started this week. And not all of them are as experienced as others. Uh, and I am learning myself. But there's one in particular this, uh, this week that was um, trying to lay the shingles in the valley at one point in the roof. And my understanding is that that can get quite complex because how you lay the shingles and stair step. Um, in a certain direction will determine if you uh, you get leaks or not. And so he just really, really struggled as he was laying them uh, up the valley at this one point in the roof. And all day he was just struggling, very slow process. And then at the end of the day, the one who knows most about roofing showed up. And he, and he you know, went up the ladder and And he looked at the the valley and the piecing together of the shingles. And within five seconds, I mean, I don't even know that his feet were yet on the roof, he began to point at these different spots that would need to get fixed. And within 30 seconds, he said, yeah, this will leak. This will leak. Now, I don't know how you fix it. I'm, I'm assuming he knows how to fix it. I'm hoping he knows how to fix it because they have been laid We need to fix it, but this guy, this guy knew knew what none of the rest of us knew. He could see things that no one else could see, and I sure am glad that he could see what none of us could see, because he's going to, you know, uh, eliminate a leak for us. But I was struck as it took him so uh, so short a moment to identify a problem. Whereas some of us spend all day creating it. You know what I mean? And so he could see what no one else could see. And that just reminded me of what we have happening with the Apostle Paul as he walks in to the city of Athens. Remember, we're in this sermon series called the First Sermons. We've been on a long journey looking at each of the sermons recorded in the book of Acts, exploring the different dimensions of the gospel story and how they were communicated in those first decades. Of Christianity, and here Paul is in the city of Athens, a city known for its philosophers, but also known for its idols. And Paul walks into the city as a Jewish man, and he looks around, and immediately he begins seeing things that no one else can see. And from there, he begins to preach the gospel, begins to tell people about the resurrection. And if you remember from last week, they are so intrigued by these new ideas he's bringing. They invite him to come to the lecture hall and present these new ideas. For them, for these philosophers, this is a man presenting new ideas. Come, share some new ideas with us. This is a group of people that love to learn new ideas. But what they don't expect is Paul's going to actually bring them a completely different way of understanding the world. What intrigues me before we ever get into the content of the sermon is what Paul is carrying with him as he steps into the city of Athens. Now we will get to the content of the sermon. And typically what we do in in our sermons is that we will read the passage, our main passage for the morning, and then we will exegete that passage. We'll dig on that passage. We'll explore different dimensions and elements of the passage and then come to some application for everyday life. But this morning what I want to do is I want to get behind the content of the message. I want to consider what is Paul carrying with him into the city before he ever gets to the content of the message. That's what I want to do. I want to explore that. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the pieces of Paul's worldview that he carries with him. What's the furniture? How is it set up in his mind? What are What, what is... The thing forming his eyes as he looks in the city. And so all of it is going to be shaped by the Old Testament. Paul, a Jewish man, would have been saturated his whole life in the stories of the Hebrew Bible. He would, have been, he, would, he would have a particular understanding of the way the world works because he sat in the books of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and all the way through the prophets. He would have carried those books with him. He would have sat with them. He would have memorized much of the Old Testament. And so when this Jewish man who now has come to Jesus walks into a city full of idols, he sees things that no one else sees. And what he's going to do is he's going to take all of that Old Testament, all that Old Testament knowledge, his particular view of the world, and he's going to repackage it in a message to this non-Jewish audience. And so before we ever look at the content of the sermon, I want to consider... What are the things he's carrying with him? I think there are four. I think there are four big principles he carries with him because of his time spent sitting with saturated soap in the Old Testament all his life. Those are the things I want to, those are those four things are the things I want to explore. And then, let's see how he takes those four things and packages them into a sermon to a bunch of philosophers. So we'll start where you would expect to start, in the beginning. Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. This would have been the foundation of any Hebrew child. Anyone growing up in the atmosphere, the environment where the Old Testament Scriptures were read and memorized would have would have started with Genesis 1. That it is God, the God of Israel, that created the world. There's not just some divine spirit floating. It's not that, it's not that some divine spark fills every piece of the universe. It is that a person spoke and out of nothing, something came. God created the world. And right next to Genesis 1, you would have put, Paul would have put Psalm 24.1. Isn't it something? We already read that passage. It is our father's word. I couldn't believe it. When you were quoting it, I thought, ah, oh, you, can't, you can't make this stuff up. T- Psalm 24.1, here it is. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And these two passages would be pillars in every Jewish mind. Everyone who goes to synagogue would have been rooted in these two passages. It is the foundation of everything else that God, a person, created the world. And so there's an order to the world. It is God and then the creation. And it's when that order gets mixed up that you get problems. But in the beginning, it's very clear, there is a God who creates something out of nothing. And the something created out of nothing is the creation that is not God. And so that would be key. Paul would have just been carrying this. It would have just been natural at this point. And so the first piece of furniture in his mind, the first part of... uh, Big principle uh, of his worldview would have been this. Let's go to this next one. God created the world. This would have been foundation. And there's foundational. There's so much there. But it's a particular order of the world. There is God. And then there's the creation. And then Paul would have also known because he would have kept reading, he kept reading into the Torah, he would have kept reading and moved right into the next section of Genesis, Genesis 2, because there we find that there's this one part of creation that comes to life because God gives that part of creation his own breath. Genesis 2 7, a key passage. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. This means that every human being is what we might call an offspring of the God who created everything. The only reason that your body is moving, is animated with a mind, with a conscience, is because God breathed life into dust. And the body came alive with a person. With a personality. And that's what we carry. We are different than every other part of the creation. No other part of the creation is like human, a human being. And so that tells me, and would have told Paul, and it's something he would have just carried with him. It just would have been part of who he was at this point. It would have been part of the, 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 um, the permanent furniture of his mind. Another key principle of his worldview—it's right here. Here's how I would say it: Humans are his children. God created the world, and humans are his children. There's this special relationship between humans, those created in the image of God, those who have received His breath—the breath of life—and these two real, these two key principles are just walking inside of Paul's mind as he enters Athens. And he looks around at all these idols. And then, and then, he would also known, and he would have known this from many, many Scriptures, from story after story out of the Old Testament, that this God who created something out of nothing, this person, this God who breathed life into a dead body to animate both man and woman, this God didn't just walk away. He didn't just start a clock and let it keep ticking off in the distance. This is the God who comes near. And over and over again in the Hebrew Bible we see stories and declarations that this God, this God of Israel is a God who is near. He is not a God somewhere out there. He is a God who is close. And there are a lot of passages we could read, but we have limited time. So let me take One of the more well known passages, one that surely sat with Paul as he walked into the city of Athens. Psalm 45. Psalm 45, verses 9 through 12 and verse 18. The Lord is good to all, He has compassion on all He has made. All His works praise, all your works praise you, Lord they tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all people may know your mighty acts. The Lord is near to all who call on Him. And then last, last verse. Do we have one more? Was that it? That's it. That is it. Okay. I try to get it right every time. But sometimes. Sometimes. Okay. But at that last verse, the Lord is near to all who call on Him. This is the Lord who made his works known so that people would know him because he's near. And so as Paul walks into Athens, just part of who he is, the worldview that he carries into the city as he moves in the marketplace, he's carrying this, this next idea, this third point. He is near and he can be known. So you can just imagine, as Paul just steps into the city, as he sees people bustling here and there, as people are making their transactions in the marketplace, as he sees philosophers and teachers lecturing in the lecture hall, as he looks at a distance and sees people walking with their carts, as he moves in the city, he just knows. He has knowledge of the way the world works, that God created the world, that humans are His children, and He is near and He can be known. All of that's right there. It's part of who He is. It is knowledge about reality. But Paul also knows, because he's a man well-trained in the Scriptures, that even with all these things true, it didn't take long for human beings to reject this God who created something out of nothing, who gave, gave breath to every human being and who comes near. It didn't take long for human beings to rebel. And to reject all of this. And so, and so, he, what Paul does is, uh, no doubt, as he's walking into the city and he looks at the idols, his memory is reactivated to all the stories he knows about his own people. Not only did humans reject God, not only did Adam and Eve rebel, but then when God called a people out, When He called Abram and Sarai and then gave them new names, Abraham and Sarah, and gave them a child of promise and created out of Him a nation of people who would be a holy nation, chosen by God, it didn't take long for even them to create idols and worship them as God. And over and over again, the prophets They preach against this idolatry over and over again. Ultimately, it is idolatry that will lead the people into exile. And so of all the passages we could pick about idolatry, let's just pick one of the well-known ones. And I am sure Paul was carrying this one with him, Because Paul was a man who sat with Isaiah for long periods of time, I'm sure. He sat with all the big prophets, but Isaiah was one of the favorites of the New Testament writers. Isaiah 44, this one will grab it. This one will grab the sense I think Paul carried with him as he walked in this city full of idols. Here's Isaiah 44. We're just going to take an excerpt uh, between 9 and 20. All who make idols are nothing. The things they treasure, worthless. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels. He shapes it in human form. Human form in all its glory. That it may dwell in a shrine. He cuts down cedars. Or perhaps took a cypress or oak. It is used as fuel for burning. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. From the rest he makes a god. His idol. He bows down, he bows down to it and worships. No one stops to think. Half of it I use for fuel. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? You see, it is one thing to reject the God who gave you life. If nothing else, that makes idolatry bad. But it is also irrational. And this is something the prophets call the people to over and over again. How in the world can you take things from the world like wood and half of it used for fire and burn it up and take the other half of the stick and turn it into an idol and call it God? How can you take something you created and call it the Creator? It literally doesn't make sense. And over and over again, the prophets call it out for what it is. It just is foolish. But this is the very thing that humans have struggled with over and over again. And so as Paul walks into the city knowing that it is God who created the world, it is humans who are his children, that this God is near and he can be known, he also understands this deep truth about the human condition. That we're always willing to pick up idols and worship them as the creator. And he's in a city where he sees it happening all over the place. And so this is that fourth thing he's carrying with him. God is not created by human hands. Paul knows that. But he's in a city where he sees idols all over the place. And he's walking around and he's looking at idol after idol after idol. But there's just one idol. There's just one idol in particular that really grabs his attention. It's an idol. and We don't know what idol it is. Most scholars think that they created this idol because they wanted to make sure not to miss any important god. So if you don't know all the gods, but you don't want to miss any of them, you'll create this idol. It was an idol to an unknown god. That's what they called it. To the unknown god. An intriguing title for a god. And Paul sees that idol as representing the problem with everything else going on. It's that idol that represents the blindness that is damaging the people. These people have been afflicted with blindness. They don't even know what they're worshiping. And it's that idol that he decides to pick out to introduce the content of a sermon. And it's in this sermon that he wants to communicate all of this all the material he has that he's carrying with him into the city. He wants to make sure that if anything, he gets across the message that it is God who created the world. The world is not just all there is. There is a God who created it. This is creation and then there is a personal God. And he wants to make sure they understand that it is that God who gave you life. We are all his children because he gave us his breath. And then it would only make sense that following that, that this God is not far away. He is near and He can be known. He's not unknown. He can be known. And don't ever think that God could be created by human hands. That's the problem Paul has seen work out over his own people's history. And he knows it worked out all the way at the beginning. It's those four things that he wants to be able to communicate. But he's going to do it to a group of Gentiles, these non-Jewish people. So his task is to be able to get all of that across without ever quoting the Old Testament. Let's see how he does. Here it is. Here's the sermon. We pick up verse 22, Acts 17, Paul preaching to this group of philosophers and other non-Jewish people here at the Areopagus. Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He is not far from any one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own prophets have said, we are His offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. An image made by human design and skill. That is a brilliant sermon. Now he's going to finish up the sermon by getting them to Jesus. It will be that man of sorrows, the man who hung on a rugged cross, the man who rose from the grave and Paul will soon say will be the judge of the living and the dead. But before we get there next week, I want us to note that he just communicated knowledge about the way the world works to a group of people who were blind without ever quoting the Old Testament. But he was able to do it because he was so saturated. He had lived so long in the Scriptures that it was part of him. He carried it. It was his worldview. And then when he walked into a, a city full of idols, he was able to see what no one else could see. Just like that man on my roof who had put on many, many roofs could see... The mismatch of shingles that no one else could see. It was because that man who had, who had roofed for so long, he knew roofing like the back of his hand. And in the same way, Paul had lived so long in the Scriptures that he carried with him a worldview about the way the world really works and he was able to identify things that no one else could see. And I think it's there that we have our application. Now, just as a review, these were the four points of Paul's sermon. God created the world, humans are his children, he's near and can be known, and God is not created by human hands. Those are the points of the sermon. I just did the points in reverse. It's all there. But the application for us, I think, is maybe a little wider. I think it's becoming the kind of people like Paul was as he stepped into the city. That's the thing I'm most interested in. So let me say this this short, this kind of short principle that will be the gateway into application for your life and my life, right where we are today. Here's, here's what I want to say. I think that idolatry grows in the absence of truth. Idolatry grows in the absence of truth. When you become unmoored, that is, unanchored from reality, there's no limit to how far or wide you will go to pick up something else. You will grab any other fantasy that looks or feels good when you have let go of truth. And so you can see what the danger would be in our world today. Let me say it this way. Here's what I think is one of the greatest dangers in our day. And I think it lays under the surface. Some of the greatest dangers in our world are stories and theories that blind us to the reality of who we really are. I think this is very important for us to understand. I think we can get so caught up in the rat race of the news cycle, or the latest theory coming down the pike, or the the new thing that a professor will give us in the college classroom, that we never step back and understand what's happening as these things come to us. And that's the thing I'm most interested in. You see, who we are, who we are is a people created by a person, given life by the Creator. And we are the creation made in His image, and He is the Creator, He is God. But we have struggled, we have always struggled to get that order right. We are a people who have rebelled. And that rebellion comes with great cost. It comes with the wage of death. It comes with a penalty that everyone will have to pay. But God in His mercy sent His Son and said, I will cut away for a new humanity. I will actually send my Son, God in flesh, to come and to suffer under the weight of all the evil and all the rebellion of every human being and He will carry it He will take it to a cross. He will die an innocent death. And He will pay the penalty of your sins. And He will then give away new life. Because I will bring Him back from the grave. He is the new human. Now seated at the right hand of God. He is the way of life. Now that's a fundamental story about who you are. You might be a Cardinals fan. I don't know why you would be. But you might be a Cardinals fan. But that's not who you are. You are fundamentally created in God's image, fallen, yet with the hope of redemption. And I think every person really understands that about themselves, but we've got a lot of different ways of, of really messing that story up. But that is fundamental. And that story says God is ultimate. But in our world, There are a lot of different theories and stories that are telling us that something else is ultimate. When you become unanchored from the story I just told, a story rooted in the Scriptures that gives us knowledge about reality, well then you're going to pick up some other theory, some other story about the way things really are, and from there there's no limit to how far you'll go. So what are those different theories? What are those different stories? I just want to do a bit of a tour de force through the last 200 years of theories and stories that we've been told. Some of them a little older, some of them a bit newer, but I'm just taking a few of them. So here it is. You might know this guy, Karl Marx, said economics is ultimate. Please understand, if any of you are historians, I understand that what I'm doing is reducing very complex ideas and theories down to a sentence. So don't come up afterwards and say, you know there was more to Karl Marx. Yes, I know there was more to Karl Marx. I've taught some of Karl Marx. I understand that I am reducing him. But he is no less than this. Karl Marx saw the world as divided into capitalist owners and proletariat wage earners. That's how the world's divided. Well, then you have Michel Foucault to this next one. He said that power is ultimate. The world is divided into those who have power and those who don't. So if you fundamentally want to understand who you are, then we need to understand your access to power. And when I understand your access to power, then I will be able to tell you who you are. And if you don't have access to power, then everything you do is in service to gaining that power. That's how Michel Foucault saw the world. It ultimately comes down to power. Or Sigmund Freud said that sex is ultimate. He said that human beings are defined by lust and secret childhood desires. And ultimately, psychoanalysis is going to emerge out of his theory. That's what's ultimate. Or maybe one that's a little more current. Consumerism says stuff is ultimate. Life is about buying and having things. And companies are paying billions of dollars every year to tell us that story. That's what, that's what gets us to exchange money for products. And every year they're trying to make sure that we buy this product and not that one. Because in consumerism, it is stuff that is ultimate. Or this one, racial theories say race is ultimate. Your skin color defines you. Is skin color important? Absolutely. It has a lot to say about how we live in this world. But it is not who you are. And then this last one. Gender theories say that feelings are ultimate. We are defined how we feel. So if you feel like a man, then you must be one. You see how loose this gets? Maybe I feel androgynous. Maybe I feel like a boy. Maybe I feel like a woman right now. Do you see how, how, how loose this becomes? When you become unanchored, you have no foundation. And so reality becomes whatever you want to make it. The problem is, if that's not how the real world works, it doesn't matter how much you feel or what you feel about gravity. If you jump off a bridge, you will fall. You can deny it on the way down. But the ground will teach you otherwise. There are some things in our world that are just true. Unfortunately, in our day, we think that the things empirical, things material, are the only things stable. But things of the mind, things of the spirit, things invisible are also stable and true. Just as real as the pew you're sitting on. Take a look at that list real quick. So these are the the different things that are being made ultimate in our day. Economics, power, sex, stuff, race, feelings. That's just a short list. You could jump on Facebook later today and you could get hit from any number of directions that would tell you one of these is ultimate. That's what happens when we become unanchored. And so here's a summary of where I think all this leads us. It's this right here. If we're not rooted in truth, then we will be caught up in the whirlwind of idolatry making something else ultimate instead of God. Do you see where the problem comes in? Your iPhone will become more important than anything else. Your truck will become more important than anything else. Your house, your career, your reputation, the desire for power or status, your retirement fund. You see how the snowball happens. And in a world where we're getting hit with news stories, From every direction, in one news cycle, you can learn about a a murder in New England, a storm in the southeast, and a financial crisis in California, and then right on the side, a, a potential genocide happening across the world. And all of it, you get that news in 60 seconds. How in the world are you to make sense of all that? When we become unanchored, we get caught up in a tornado of theories and stories. And we have no way of knowing how to live real life. So my call to us is to be a people so saturated in the word of God that we are anchored. That no matter the news story or the theory, no matter the latest trend or the or the or, or the most popular hashtag on Twitter, you and I are anchored with knowledge about the world in the Bible. Now you know that's going to require of us. You just can't get the Bible by osmosis. It's going to require reading it. So if you had to guess what my next step would be for us you see how this logically flows? I hope so. Here it is. Here's our next step. This is what I want us to try to do this week. Read the Bible every day. And I'm just going to say, just try one psalm a day. If you pick up one psalm a day, it will begin to train your mind to pick up the very worldview that Paul had when he walked into Athens. And when you walk around in our world, he walked around in a marketplace. We often walk around on the internet and in social media. But no matter where we're walking, we will have eyes to see what very few can see, and we'll be anchored in truth. I'm a little long this morning, but I think it is only fitting that I would read the first psalm. So let's just say later today you pick up the first psalm. You just read it, hoping that it'll help train you in the way things really are. Take a look. Take a listen to what you would read. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord who meditates on it day and night. Well, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not weather and whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They're like shafts that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Well, that would tell you that the world is divided up between those who know God and those who are far from Him. Those who are anchored like a tree and those who are like shafts that get blown away. You are not fundamentally a white, black, or brown person. You are not fundamentally middle class or high class, or just a wage earner. You are not fundamentally a Republican, a Democrat, or an Independent. Fundamentally, we are made in the image of God, and either we are righteous people rooted in God, or those who are wicked, who do not know God. Now, I'm going to gather that most of us are in the former, because we have come to Him through Jesus. But Psalm 1 gives you a frame of the world. You could do a lot worse than reading Psalm 1 every day this week. Or read Psalm 1 and then read Psalm 2. I want us to be a people who are not blown to and fro by the news cycle. I want to be a people like the Apostle Paul who carry a worldview that is anchored and unshaken. And the only way we're going to get that is if we saturate ourselves in knowledge about the world And it just so happens that the Bible gives us that. So that's the kind of people I want us to be. That's the challenge for today. Let me pray for us. Father, I just pray in Your wisdom and in Your power, would Your Spirit help us become a people who do not get blown to and fro. Let us not become a people that are like shafts that the wind blows away. May we be anchored, see You as ultimate, And we look more like Your Son day in and day out. Holy Spirit, do that inside of us. We know You even intercede for us when we don't even have words. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Teacher and Savior. Together we say, Amen.